Hello and welcome back to Chasing Squirrels podcast. Uh, This podcast, once again, is going cross borders. But let me back it up just for one second. Often in the morning, I have to take my dog for a walk. My dog is very old, uh, very intolerant, and quite lazy. So when I take my dog for a walk in the morning, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous because... As I'm walking the dog, I'm also checking my Twitter feed. And if I pause too long, (laughs) if I pause too long, um, reading something that catches my eye, without a word of a lie, I look down and my dog is asleep. Now, this is kind of, uh, in some ways, a good measure or a positive measure of my intrigue level. And, you know, I could, I could frame this conversation in a whole lot of academic ways. Um, you know, I've read some blog posts from this individual I'm talking to tonight, followed her on Twitter. Um, I'm aware of uh, bits and pieces of her voice, which kind of all came out of the fact that my dog fell asleep. So in particular, there was an article that she has written on her blog post about getting into a little bit of a career rut. Now, it's a little bit more complex than that, but it caught my eye. Uh, teaching for me as a second career, and when I jumped into it, I was hyper aware of coming at it with a little bit of a intensity that I, I, I wanted to keep the energy going. So I came out of hospitality and jumping into the second career, you know, I had obligations. I mean, I still had my mortgage. Uh, I was married. I had uh, um, two kids. So I knew that jumping into education, I couldn't lose momentum. But when I think back on some of the risks that I've taken in education, I'm not quite sure if anything really, really creeps up to that moment of flipping careers. Education in itself sometimes feels like it's a pretty safe stay. So when I saw her blog post, I thought to myself, you know, am I also in a little bit in that space? What do I want to do next? How much of it is what I perceive to be the limitations on my options, or is it me? So without me giving away too much of the story, I'd like to welcome Jen to the podcast. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much. So could you throw down just a little bit of an introduction for yourself? Sure. Um, This is my 20th year in the classroom as an elementary educator. Um, I, um, (laughs) you said you came to it as a second career. Teaching is what I always knew I wanted to do. In fact, um, apparently my grandmother recently found a page from the local paper when I was in third grade, and I currently teach third graders. And they interviewed a bunch of us about what we wanted to be when we grow up, and teaching is what I talked about. Um, So there's never been any question for me that that's what I wanted to do. I did take a few years before I started teaching after college and and traveled, and um, I actually worked on a cruise ship and worked in a bookstore. But knowing always that teaching was my intention. And so... I started teaching 20 years ago, taught, I've taught fourth graders, fifth graders, first graders, kindergartners, and now third graders. Um, I've taught my whole career in Title I schools, so uh, schools, and, and pretty highly impacted schools with 75 to 80% of our kids receiving free or reduced price lunches, mostly first or second generation immigrants. Um, current, my current school has mostly, overwhelmingly, immigrant students from El Salvador and Honduras, often families who've been through a lot of trauma before they've um, made it to where they are now. Um, So I I feel really blessed that I knew exactly what I always wanted to do and that I've been able to do it and to do it in 
kind of any way I wanted to. You know, when I needed to do something different, I've had principals who've let me change grade levels or teach the gifted class for a couple of years or, you know, whatever it was that I kind of felt like I needed to stretch myself and do something a little bit different, um, which is, I think, part of why I'm feeling like I'm not really sure what's going on now. I, this is only my second year in third grade. Um, my class this year is just absolutely awesome. Half of them I knew as kindergartners when I taught kindergarten. Um, so seeing them as third graders and getting to spend time with them as third graders is about the coolest thing that I can imagine. Um, so I feel like everything should be just about perfect this year. And uh, I think that's part of why I feel sort of stumped. I love, um, I love that turn of phrase uh, when, when you said it's your second year in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> It's just to give that back to you because I, I, I probably I should have spent an extra year in, in third grade. <laughs> it was just, but I totally get what you're saying. Teaching third grade, your second year yeah. teaching. Yeah. It just, it struck I me. I like that. I talked with a third grader last night and I told her I was in third grade for the third time. And, and did she have any tips for me? And she kind of looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> That's awesome though. Those are sweet moments though, right? It's, uh, I love, I love that little bit of dissonant, that little sort of confusion I'll yeah. do something similar when I talk with my students. So I teach in high school and I work with students that uh, have been expelled or suspended from their, their homeschool. Right. So uh, I love the energy of it. Um, I, I would I share the sentiment. I'm honored to be able to do the work that I do and to help students reconnect and make sense of the system in often ways that right. was never provided to them before. I could say it's about, you know, before we hit the, the airwaves, I said, I, I like I'll teach any course. Part of that is because I have to. Um, it's true. Like this is a nine, 10, 11, 12 program that I'm a part of. And right. we service uh, my school board is a, um, it's split into four regions. So we service the North region, which is five or six, uh, six high schools. And those, okay. any, if a student gets suspended or expelled over a certain amount, number of days, they come to us. So that kid comes with all the courses that they're being taught. So, oh, they, wow. yeah, so it's, it's complex. It's high energy. It's, um, it's blended and it's multimodal and it's multi-directional and it's, I often say it's like hummingbird teaching. You kind of alight for a moment. You're there. You kind of like talk it. You do this micro lesson. You kind of kind of wind up the key and then you're like, okay, I'll be back in a second. And then you get over and then I start teaching math and then I'll go over and I'll start doing history and then I'll go wow. and do geography yeah, stop for a moment, have a drink of water, have a piece of fruit, start it all over again. Um, but I, I, men I mentioned this because it's uh, th that type of energy in the classroom. I love that you say you, you pose that question to the grade three student. My question in that frame to my high school students is, what should my next job be? And it's, it's interesting to see their reactions because there's a really strong belief system that teaching's forever. Right. What do you think about that? Teachings forever. What does that land for you? Wow. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, sadly, are the teachers that have been doing it forever that probably shouldn't have. Okay. Um, and I think that's something that I'm hyper aware of. I've watched those teachers that have been in the classroom for 20, 30 more years. Um, and that it seems clear to me, at least, and to many, that, that they are ready to be done. But I think they don't have a sense of where they can go. Um, because I think there is sort of that, that prevailing idea that teaching is forever. And so obviously you don't walk away from it and do something different. Um, and the people I've watched walk away from teaching have been one of two camps. 
those who've, you know, walked away because they got married and had kids and stayed home and, and, you know, that was a way to get away from teaching. Or the superstar teachers who have become authors and consultants and presenters and, and you know, are, are um, improving education in a different way than from being in the classroom. Um, but yeah, I think there's probably some negative impact of the fact that people view teaching as something that is forever. Um, because it'd be better if we could feel like we could walk away when we need to. Let, let, let me, when you, when you wrote that blog post, was, was there anything, was there any of that fear of becoming in your, in your, in your words as you were writing? Like, am I becoming that teacher that just stays too long? Oh, definitely. Um, because I think pedagogically, I don't have any concerns about what I'm doing as a teacher. Um, I, again, having always been in Title I schools with really phenomenal staffs, I have been pushed to become a better teacher every year, to think deeply about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, I did my national board certification in my fourth year teaching, which I think also pushed me to be far more reflective than I might have otherwise been. So pedagogically, I think, yeah, what's happening in my classroom is fine. I'm not worried about it. But I feel like the way that I'm I'm worried about the way I respond to children. I'm worried that I'm not patient the way I need to be. I worry that I'm jumping to conclusions quickly or not giving them the space to grow that they need. Um, and, and so that, so yeah, I am definitely concerned about being that teacher that people will look at and go, man, that was the time she should have walked away. Hmm. Can, can, so here where I am in, in Ontario and Canada, we don't have, and I've had, I've come across title one, that that title several right. times and I've, I've reached out to a few people um in my sort of digital pln just to kind of shape it a bit for me because we don't i i don't we don't have that designation can you can can you do two things for me just tighten that back up again what what guess i guess the textbook textbook title one designation what it means but what is the sort of what's the, the sort of that implication, what's the implication of sort of like, or the, I could be as implication or assumption of, of being a a participant, like a learner there, whether you're a student or a teacher, I didn't shape the second part. Well, I'll think about it more, but on the front end textbook definition, what does it mean when you say a title one school? Um, Our federal, the federal government in the United States gives districts, gives states, if I understand it correctly, gives states a certain amount of money from the federal government based on the number of children in that state who receive free or reduced price lunch, so who have demonstrated to the state that they are living in impoverished circumstances, however that's defined. Um, And then the state doles that out to districts based on the percentage in each district, and then the districts dole it out to schools based on the percentage in each school. Um, So within my district, that means we have Title I schools that range from about 45% of the kids being on free or reduced price lunch to about 85% of the kids, um, which feels like a pretty significant difference to me <laughs> as one who's always been on the higher end of the, of the free or reduced. Um, and then you've got, of course, the schools that don't quite make that cutoff, you know, that have 40% of their kids receiving free or reduced price lunches, but don't get any Title I funding, um, which... You know, anytime you draw a line means there's going to be some some difficulties, some challenges that someone's going to face when they don't quite make it to get the support they need. 
Um, oftentimes, Title I schools are the ones you see not making the test scores. Uh, and that's by giving the money, it's how the federal government has some control over that. So um, when you look at what what is in schools, the way schools are impacted by not making test scores in the U.S., it's the Title I schools that can be held accountable by the federal government. Others might be able to be held accountable by their district or the state, but the federal government, the only way they have any accountability in the U.S. is based on funding. And so basically they threaten to not give you funding if you don't make high enough test scores. Um, and because Title I schools tend to be children who are living in poverty, tend to be children who are um, living in traumatic situations, tend to be second language learners, um, they tend to be the schools that struggle with test scores, which means they often are viewed somewhat negatively by many, um, especially by those who don't really understand the situation and who simply look at test scores as a way to say this is a good school or not a good school. Um, but I, I will say my own children went to the elementary school where I taught for many years, even though it wasn't our neighborhood school, because I knew they'd get the best instruction they were going to get, because those were teachers who were every day trying to think, how do I do a better job of helping my children learn to read and write and do math and become thinkers and, and learners? Um, so in my mind, a Title I school is the best place to be as a teacher because you can't rest on your laurels. You can't think, oh, well, what we're doing is fine. It's never fine. It's always got to be better. Um, and I love that about being in Title I schools. Does, it's, it's just it's fascinating to me. Would a school ever shift? Do schools shift in and out of Title I designation? Definitely. Um, in fact, I mean, it, it depends on how your demographics are changing and how your percentage of kids across your district is changing. Um, in Arlington, which is a district just north of us, um, I have definitely watched a couple of, of really phenomenal schools start to shift away from having their, they're kind of on the, on the cusp of losing their Title I funding. Um, and I'll, it'll be interesting to see how much that impacts them as a school. Um, to lose that because it's not a significant shift in their population. It takes just a small shift to bump you over that <laughs> line of wherever it's being drawn as to what makes you Title I and what percentage of kids. Um, so if it's if your district is defining it by 45% of your kids or more, if suddenly you're at 44%, you're no longer Title I. You, know, you were 46, now you're 44. You're no longer a Title I school. Um, and, and the school I started my career in was not a Title I school-wide when I started there and it became one within my first two years there. Um, and so, so yes, it does, it does shift. What, what else comes along with besides the, besides the food subsidy? So what else comes along with the title one support? And so the, the reason I ask the, sorry, yeah. the reason I ask is cause I'm thinking from the point of view of you might not like, Okay, so the, the the kids are hungry. They're they're socioeconomically, let's say they're they're just it's not viable for them to have school lunch or to bring school lunch. Um, but the the lunch part of it, I get maybe that's one identifier as as you know if we can feed the kids that need to be fed, then we're sort of setting them up for success. It's a great wellness uh, connection. But what else comes along with that funding? And it just makes me, if, if, it, if a school shifts, like what if it's not the food that's actually helping that school? Wait, am I, I hear you laughing. Am I on to something? Like, am I like, am I, am I like, am I part of your tribe all of a sudden? I feel like that's what, that's what I felt like. I love to laugh. Walk me through that then. What, what am I seeing here? Because I'm not that smart of a guy, but I'm oh. starting to feel like 
this is kind of a um it's uh someone told me Hobson's choice. Have you heard of that before? Yes. yes. That it that it feels yeah. like that. Like the two the two or three things that you're being offered here, you're just like, you know what? Like I don't want any of them. No, you only get to choose the wait, I don't want that. Right. No, you will choose one of the three. So what else comes along with that? And what are the challenges inherent with it? And feel free to keep laughing because I feel like I I feel like I, I hit something here. Well, the food thing is not a question because anyone who qualifies for free or reduced lunch gets it at any school, whether it's Title I or not. Okay. So the food is always provided. That's just what is used as a, as a way to decide whether or not a school qualifies for this need. Um, so uh, some of that is – a lot of that is up to your state and district – so I know within my district, um, there are certain things that we have, but a lot of it is there's money that comes to you and you as a school get to decide. There are requirements about what you do in the way of community involvement. So you have to work with families um, as a Title I school. That's not an option. There are requirements about the way that you include families, and, and um, which I think is critical and hopefully would be happening even without that requirement. But <laughs> um but then there's just money that comes to you. And I know in the building I'm in currently, one of the things that we have chosen to do with that money is that my district gives us a part-time social worker and a part-time school psychologist. We have chosen to take some of that funding and make those two positions full-time. So we have a social worker and a psychologist in our building full-time. When you're talking about kids who um, often left their home countries in the dark of night because someone in the family had been killed by gangs and the family was being threatened and they left everything behind and they took, you know, the very long journey and crossed into Texas and were kept in ICE detention facilities, were separated from some family members often. You know, they've been through some significant trauma, um, which impacts them emotionally and therefore academically. And so having a social worker and a psychologist in our building full time makes a huge difference for us and for the work we can do with these kids and with their families, to be honest. Um, because sometimes the kids may be holding up just fine, but the parents are <laughs> not, and that's going to impact the kids too. Um, so it definitely makes a huge difference for a school if they lose that funding. Um, and districts that have enough money, which mine mostly is, <laughs> um, okay. My, my county has not felt a need to completely actually fund our school system the way it should. It's a very wealthy district that has not funded the school system fully, but but should be a district that has that kind of funding. Then the district can step up and make things happen for schools. Um, and to some extent, my district definitely does prioritize the schools with the greatest need to give us, you know, extra instructional coach support or whatever else we may need. Keep our our class size numbers are much lower in a Title One. When my children <laughs> went from being at the school with me. The oldest went there from kindergarten through fifth grade. The little one did kindergarten and first there. And when she went to our neighborhood school for second grade, she walked into a classroom of 29 kids, having never been in a classroom of more than 20. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the class size makes a huge difference. Um, so there is a lot, and, and it kind of depends on how much the district can do to continue that support or to at least alleviate the loss of it if that kind of shifts. You know, I'm feeling more and more like my dog is psychic. My dog, my dog, no, sorry, just to segue. My dog knew to lay down and, you know, that was 
you know, me trying to wake, like I told you before we hit record, she's deaf. So right. even as I'm, as I'm reading your blog posts and I'm thinking like this, these are some conversations that like, I, I got some learning to do. Her name's Darcy. I'm like, don't you think so Darcy? And I just, you know, she's totally asleep. So <laughs> it's funny. Like there's, I've, I've tried, I've tried to get outside my own um, silo part of that whole this whole podcast is it's like a protracted reflective practice um so much of what i experience through um you know amazing educators like yourself allows me to to sort of reflect on my own context and i just i i listen to your story and and i just it, it hits me time and time again like like this is there's there's the teaching and then there's the work around teaching and i'm not even talking about the prep or the thinking and the planning i'm talking about right. what starts to feel a little bit like the political side of teaching and there's not always a comfortable space i'll say up here in talking about the politics of education and but i tell you i would definitely i would feel i would feel emboldened by your context like i you gotta step up to make things happen yes Dude, I got it. E I got it easy compared to your context. You know, you know, like I, th I throw down that I work with students that have suspended and expelled, and that's just one breath. And you're like, hey, whatevs. <laughs> let me let me tell you how I fight for funding so that I get a psychologist in the classroom for kids that are suffering from trauma. Like, come on, like that is just that is a. I get distributive funding. I get how you sort of okay, we got this pipeline going. Let's just divert it because we need to get this other thing going. Totally get that. Right. But like I said, the measurement that metric starting from the school lunch, I knew that there had to be something more complex behind it because when that money starts to come, then you start to have support services that can't be turned off. Right. And I'm at a point, I think, where I realize that our schools, at least, no, I think all of them, <laughs> really need to be more than what they've traditionally been. And when all we focus on as a school is the academics and can children read, write, and do math, then we we lose children and and even if we've managed to get children to be able to pass tests and move on um it doesn't mean we've actually taught children to read write and do math and become productive members of our society and i feel like without the support you know i look at my children's neighborhood school which is why you know four miles down the road from where i teach but a wildly different world um and there are so many children there um who are struggling with various things. One I know of whose father is very, very ill and has been now for two years at least. Um, and what that means for this child and the learning that this child can do and the sort of support this child needs at school. Um, the fact is that we have so many kids impacted in so many ways and schools need to be able to broaden what we offer children and families um, in order to support them. So, so back to where I kind of, I, I guess I poked the bear a little bit of it is, <laughs> is, and I mean the bear in the metaphorical sense. Um, yeah. But if let's say in the political sense, actually I'll do something else first. Do you, um, I've never actually asked this question in this way. Do you, okay. What are your thoughts? If I say wellness first, then curriculum, yay or nay? Uh, definitely. I don't have any questions about that. If we don't have children, you know, I, that's 
that's the hierarchy. If kids aren't, if kids don't have food, and, and I can say this from my own personal experience, if I'm hungry, <laughs> or if I've had, you know, a really traumatic morning as a parent, and I go to school, it takes a lot then for me to be able to get to a point where I can do what I need to do well at school. And and I've had 40 plus years on this earth to get used to that kind of thing. And we're asking mm-hmm. seven and eight and nine year olds to do it. Um, yeah, I think if we if we aren't prioritizing wellness, then we aren't really teaching children well. I I often think about the the lengths that I go. I I did a talk, so I'm I'm a part of something here. It's called the Ed Can Network, and it's it's sort of like it's my only let's say federal level of or national Canadian national level of educators. So it's a bit of a it's a it's a it's kind of a discussion exchange. So there we had two meetings last year where it was um, a bunch of educators from around Ontario getting together a whole bunch of different contexts. And we we're talking about ostensibly what are the signals out there of future school? So what is it the things that we're seeing that are going to be a part of? I don't I, I, I hate the 21st century <laughs> learner. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of done. I think that if we're really doing 21st century learning, then we got to say 22nd century education, right? Like yeah. let's, let's push, let's push that bubble. But that's, that's kind of what we were getting together to do. And it was really fascinating because it was all different, all different facets of educator there. So um, I've maintained my relationship with that, with that group. And I was invited to come and speak about my context just last week, talking about working with the students that I do. Right. And, and, it, and in the middle of my talk, like I, the, the thing is that it's, it is my lived experience in my, so I, I mentioned that I was teaching hospitality and, and anthropology and psych when I first, in my first year, but I quickly moved into working in a, a program that was uh, supporting students with some behavioral challenges. And then from there I went into guidance and then out of that, I went into special education and then I came out of special education and I went into something called personalized alternative education. And now I'm in sort of further down the rabbit hole where I am now. So that's been my, my 12 year arc wow. of working in sort of fringe sort of niche areas of, of classes. Right. Right. So I'm giving this talk to talking about working with the students and I get choked up, totally caught me off guard. And I'm just like, little weepy in the middle of I'm just like, you got to give me a moment because I'm, I'm in this space where I'm thinking about the lengths that I go to keep my kids on track. And I had this really weird kind of like kaleidoscopic moment. And I think in the middle of it, I, I, I was feeling on their behalf. I was thinking about my own fatigue and then something in my mind just kind of popped up and said, and is the school board taking care of you as well as you are taking care of the children? And, and when I look at teacher wellness, which is a, it's a hot topic right now on my board, um, you know, wellness in the general sense, we have a brand new mental health initiative. Um, I, I get really, I get really, I, it, that's, that's the thing that anchors my thinking right now, as in how do I often think about the stuff that I work on with the kids and are they able to generalize these skills? Like when they walk out that door, are they still protected? Are they actually carrying that toolbox with them when they leave me? And we're in the middle of my own program talking about the term that we've started to use is aftercare. Oh, interesting. So what does that look like? for? Because like I mentioned before, these students may be going back to a high school. Like ours are, we're actually on the campus of a high school, but we're not a part of that high school. We're just in one of their mega portables out back. Um, So when a student leaves us, 
we they may be going back to that school that's right beside us. That is one of the schools we serve. Or they could be going 20 kilometers north. I don't know what that is in miles, but it's about a 30 minute 30 minute drive at 80. I can't. I was going to do it again, but a 30 minute drive north of us. So you know we don't have direct contact with them. So we're starting to talk about what aftercare looks like. Do we check in on them? Do we follow right. up with them? Do we have a visit? What, you know, in, in the you taking care of kids, the board, your school board, your school district taking care of you first, I guess, do you check in on your students once they leave you? Do you sort of peek in on them? Do you, do you reach out? Do you, hey, how you doing? Do you do that? Um, that's a really interesting question because it's one I've struggled with over the years. The schools I've taught in are very highly mobile populations, which is not surprising when you're talking about a lot of families living in poverty. Um, mm. They either can no longer afford where they are or they get to a point where they can afford something better and they move on. Um, and if that happens, I, I often lose track of them. Um, and it pains me a lot to have that happen. I have, we're a Google Apps for Education um, districts now. And I have had some kids who've stayed within our district reach out to me through that, which I love. I love the idea that I can keep a connection with them after they leave. But a lot of our kids leave our district. Um, as long as they stay in my school, I do keep up with them. Um, because it's not difficult for me to keep up with them there. <laughs> you know, I, I spend a half hour every Thursday with two of my former kindergartners that are now second graders who are having a rough time this year and have them read to me and just kind of connect with them. I have the fourth graders that I had last year. I see um, tend to have recess at the same time as I do, so I can check in with them. But I'm not making a concerted effort to check in with them. Um, I think that when they when they leave my school, it's I kind of lose them. Um, and part of that, I think, is because they're so young. You know, I, I watch, my husband's a college professor. I have lots of friends who are high school teachers and watching them be able to stay connected on social media with former students or um, I don't have that opportunity. My students don't have right. kind of the same way to stay connected to me that I would like them to have. And I think by the time they get to that point, they've sort of forgotten me and moved on. <laughs> right. So, but it's, it sounds as if, you know, that notwithstanding, it sounds as if you see, you see the value of it. Like, it sounds as if that would be kind of cool. Like that would be my first instinct when these students were no longer in my classroom. Like it is now, but even in, in your context, I'd be thinking, you know what? I get so deep in these moments with the kids in the support structure and also the classroom activities and the curriculum and these other things. But the family, that's sort of like that family, that community that you're building. Um, right. It's hard to let go of. Like it's hard right. to sort of say, okay, you've now going to the next grade. We're done. Yeah, you've put and that's so what much, I wrestle with. So you know, much emotional um, time and energy into creating. Uh oh. Oh, I've lost my train of thought. I'm losing Sorry. some of the feed. Oh no. Hmm. Let me see if I've moved. <laughs> oh, are we back? Are we good? I think we're good. Okay, okay. let's push on. How much did you get of what I said? <laughs> um, enough to have me thinking that the amount of emotional time and energy we spend in building a community makes it really hard to then just start over. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what teachers do every year is they start over. And every year I start and think, I'm never going to love these kids like I loved last year's kids. And then of course they do love them as much. Um, but it's also then hard to put that much emotional time and energy into this year's kids 
and still be invested in last year's and the year before and the year before. Um, I love high schools that have an advisory that's, that you stay with that same teacher for four years, that that's, that's a core group of kids and teacher that you will remain a community supporting each other throughout those whole four years. Um, and I wish at the elementary level that we could figure out kind of some way of keeping one person who's connected to these, these specific children all the way through. Yep. We have, um, yeah, I've, I feel it. We had something, we had a program like that at, at, a probably eight or nine years ago where the high school students were assigned to, they're sort of clustered with teachers and that's what the support system was. The teachers would check in. Now that whole kind of frame has changed a little bit. It's been internalized and kind of subsumed with something. We have a growing success document that came out from the ministry of education. So it became formalized, but at the school level, we had this relation, I think it was called TAPS teacher advisor. Don't know, but it was that effect where the students would be kind of, you'd get a on the fly connection with a, a teacher advisor if you needed it. So interesting. I wanted, I wanted just before I launch into my next, my next curiosity, um, are you out of the rut? Have you, have you, have you found, have you found a path out or have you found a next step? Have you found a thing that sort of like you can kind of hang your next move on? Where are you at on that? Um, I don't know if I'm fully out of the rut. I'm definitely in a better place now than I was when I wrote that. Um, and I think a part of that is just getting through that beginning of the year. It, that's such a, it's physically exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. Um, it, and it feels so repetitive. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how true that is with, with older students, but with eight year olds, I feel like what we're doing every day is the same thing we did yesterday. Um, and once, once we can get past that to a point where we're sort of in a routine and we're all rolling and, and more independent with what we're doing, I definitely feel better. So I think that was a part of it, but I am more than I have, I, in 20 years of teaching, I have looked at jobs outside the classroom several times, but I have never, until last year, I had never applied for a job outside of, of being in the classroom full time. And last year I did, um, I applied for a job at the department of, a, a one year fellowship at the department of education in Washington, DC. Uh, and partly just because it was, I felt like it was a, a good time for me to do that. Um, there had been several things that happened last year that really pushed me in that direction. And I didn't get that position. Um, and, and that was fine. I, you know, by the time I found out I didn't get it, I was already planning for this year and was not upset at all. Um, but this, so this is really the first year where I've kind of been thinking vaguely, not specifically with, oh, I should think about this position, but I still am at a point of thinking, will I be in the classroom next year or do I need to do something else? And maybe what I need is just a year out of the classroom. I need a sabbatical. I need, you know, something to refresh and rejuvenate. Um, and maybe I don't, I don't know yet, but I've never been, I've never spent this kind of time thinking maybe I need to not be here next year. Is there, is there any guilt that goes along with thinking that way? Um, in my personal situation, there's a ton of guilt because some of the kids I taught in kindergarten are second graders this year and I should teach them next year. And I feel very strongly about that because I know their families. I know them. Um, I feel like it would be, it would be unfair to that. Not that I think, you know, I'm such a superstar teacher that not having me, I have a phenomenal team of teachers. They'll be great in whoever's class they're in, <laughs> but 
I feel like teachers spend a good portion of the beginning of every year getting to know the kids and then even longer getting to know the families to be able to do the best they can for the kids. So if I already know those people, <laughs> I'm in a better position to serve those kids from the from day one than I would otherwise be. So yeah, there's guilt about that. There's also guilt of, of you know, I work in a Title I school. I serve, I, I made a very deliberate choice at the beginning of my career to teach in schools that really needed teachers rather than teach in schools where the kids were gonna be successful no matter who was in the classroom with them. Um, and so walking away from that definitely feels um, like I'm abdicating some responsibility. It's a funny thing, eh? It's a really funny thing. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, me mentioning that question to my students. What should my, what should my next career be? And you, I got this really kind of like blank, kind of blinky stare. Like, what, what, what do you mean, sir? Like, your next job, like... Like, you mean like the next course you're going to teach? I'm like, no, like if I were, if I were going to leave education or, you know, become a, a, a bike courier or something, what do, you, what do you know about me or what have you observed about me? What other sort of work would I be good at? And inevitably they say something like teaching us next year, you'd be really good at that. And I'm like, okay, like work with me here. But I get the whole, I don't say it in as much to, I'm not looking to sort of shatter their reality in so much as just trying to get them thinking about um, the longevity of a career or self self-advocacy as in what else are you interested in? And does, does your current career portfolio offer the, the broadest opportunity for you? But I know that my colleagues and I'm hearing it in your voice too, that there's a, there is an, an anchor on the soul that comes with that decision because you can't think about your next step forward without really really you know feeling what you're leaving behind and i you know i've just it takes a lot of bravery and it has to be a little bit of i'm imagining a little bit of emotional lockdown just to i need to take the step forward and i need to do it now for me (laughs) right and and if i knew what that step forward was maybe it would be easier to take um but i think that's part of it is i can't really figure out what i want to do (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, no, and that's that could just be that's in in our board. There is a lot of other opportunities, but there's also self-correcting measures. And I, when I say my board, I think that would be the quote of saying your district. Right. Um, I was tutored on that. Do you know um, Arthur Chiaravelli? Does that name, that name strike anything? He's a he's a going gradeless guy. Um, I forget where he's out of. He might be out of Jersey. But anyways, okay. we we're we we're hashing that out and he was give, throwing down all the lingo. And you know, it's funny. You think you know all the acronyms and lingo in education uh, till you listen to someone talk about their own district and you realize when I say board, he means district. So we were messing around with all that. So anyways, um, the opportunities in my school board, and I guess I could say, I'm going to start saying district, why not? In my <laughs> school district, like you can get consultancy positions, which are considered out of classroom positions. But they have a limitation on it, as in you can only do you can only be out of the classroom for seven years, which would be kind of moving from one consultancy to another, and then you have to go back to the classroom. Okay. Does such a thing exist for you? Actually, there's you know I'm in a huge district, um, a ridiculously large district. I think we're the tenth largest district in the United States, or something close to that. We have nearly two hundred thousand students. Um, okay, do, do something for me. If you were to drive from end to end. Side to side, how long would it take um, you? Okay, so geographically, we're a pretty big district, but not nearly big enough 
to suggest that I could drive from one end of my district to the other in an hour. And that, and mostly it takes me an hour because of traffic. <laughs> um, I mean, we are right side, we are a suburb of Washington, DC. Um, a big, big swaths of our district are more urban than they are suburban, even though we're, we're really a suburban district. Um, but we have a lot of very urban kinds of like where my students live is far more urban. When we take field trips to parks and things, you know, they're, we took them to Washington, D.C. in the past to, to see some of the monuments, and it's the ducks in the pond that are far more fascinating than the monuments because they don't see ducks. <laughs> um, gotcha, gotcha, okay. But so it's a huge district, and because of that, there's a ton of different things that I could do. Um, I, 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 think, I think I've always been a little bit uncertain about whether or not I really want to spend the majority of my time working with teachers but not with kids. Mm, I've heard that one before. <laughs> so if I could figure I out how heard. to work with teachers and kids, I would do it. But if I'm going to spend the majority of my time working just with teachers, I'm not sure that that's the place I want to be. Gotcha. So our board, our board has just short of um, 125,000 students. Oh, wow. Okay. So my particular board. And it's spread out. Like if I were to drive... It's about the same. If I were to drive from our most eastern school to our most western school... Yeah, you even got some highways in there. It would probably, so it would probably take you an hour and a half. Okay. And if you're to drive from the most southern school to the most northern school, um, it would definitely take you probably an hour and a half as well. Okay. So we 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 have a whole lot of land. We don't have it by density, but um, yeah, our York region in general, which is sort of like the the area that uh, is like all the towns and cities that are part of York region. It's kind of, I don't even know how to describe that. It's like we have our cities and towns and then collectively they're called a region. Okay. So the, as, as uh, like, as of around, um, I think it's as of last year, we're somewhere around a, a 1.1 million people. Okay. So for that distance, we're, we're not heavy. We're not, we're not dense. I don't think we're not that dense, but, um, there's a lot, there is opportunity. It's interesting to me. I like what you say because it's officially a thing when I, when I hear colleagues talk about trying on one of those consultancies that, um, they're mourning already the loss of the connection to the students. Right. Like that's the thing that they just, they, they don't want to let go. Right. And yet I also think it's, it's the students, not, not, not in a negative way, but it's the students that mean that I'm so physically and emotionally exhausted. Um, and so maybe, maybe it would be healthier to take a year or two years. I love that your consultancies are limited. Um, I've watched a lot of people go into our, into that kind of a position in my district thinking, I'm just going to go for a year or two and then staying for a decade or longer. Um, it's often, I think, difficult to, to make the change back into the classroom. Um, for a lot of reasons. Um, one, often those positions are 11 or 12 month positions, which means you're actually being paid more because you're working more. And so to drop back down to a 10 month position means you're going to take a pay cut. <laughs> and that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> um, but I also think there's there's more flexibility in that kind of a position. You know, the fact is that my students arrive at 825 and they leave at 3.30 and I have to be there. There's no, I can't run out and take my child to the doctor or you know, whatever. Whereas in a position where I'm not, 
responsible for children all day, I have a little more flexibility. Um, and it might be difficult, I think, to go back. Professionally managed time, yeah. And I and I get both the actual, the, the factual and the fictional element of what you are saying, as in nobody drives their kids to doctor's appointments during the day. But I do get the whole idea where you're talking about that when, you, when you're liberated from being between the bells. Other stuff jumps in. Right. It's just the way it goes. Other stuff jumps in. And you can't, in the same way that you can't necessarily expect someone that's within the classroom to be able to then walk down the hall and start doing some sort of presentation on Flipgrid because you're bound to the classroom. The counterspin to that is that if you are someone coming in to do Flipgrid, you're not then going to be just showing up and taking over a class. So it's like apples and oranges. It really is. There's, there's that's, there's that gap between. So the choice to leave, I think you have to reconcile with the fact that you probably won't have the connection to the kids, which is both the plus and minus to, you know, your existence right. I mean, right now. It's why I do what I do. And yet I think it may also be what's just kind of meant after 20 years that I'm mm-hmm. just tired. <laughs> it sounds like compassion fatigue. And I mean, that's, that's that jargonized moment of feeling so deeply for so long. And, and it starts, it starts to kind of reverb on you a little bit. Yeah, it so. does. Um, and, and I, yeah, I think, I think that's just teachers. I think that the job is just such that you are, you are much more emotionally invested than you would be if you were working in public relations or if you were, you know, whatever else you might be doing. Um, I'm guessing this is more emotionally and you're more emotionally invested than you were as a chef. Um, in different ways, in different ways. It's funny because, um, uh, and, and I think this was, was one of the moments that that choked me when I was doing the talk this week because I was talking about um, that transition from being a chef and coming into the classroom and in my first couple weeks meeting, I really felt like I was meeting the teenage version of some of the staff that I had worked with in the restaurant. Um, So, you know, in the restaurant, so here's, so here's, so here's some of the stories from the restaurant. Um, I couldn't make it to work this morning, sir. I was with the lawyer. I'm trying to bring my family over here from Pakistan. Tell me that can't be a narrative from your classroom. Um, Sir, I couldn't get to work on the weekend because um, my significant other works a second job. They had the car and I couldn't make it in that day because I had to stay and watch the kids. Tell me that conversation couldn't happen in the classroom except you're talking with like i don't know maybe in your case you're talking with eight and nine year olds me i'm i'm meeting 16 17 year olds and this is also the context that i'm stepping into some of these conversations now there's also the other kids like sir i just didn't come to class because i skipped (laughs) (laughs) you know my my bad sir but it was funny when i said i think that was also i had this really weird stream of consciousness connection between the restaurant, leaving the restaurant, arriving in education and getting this like source code moment of connectivity of having to do better for the students, having to do better for myself, having to make better connections so that that narrative, if the kid wants to change it, I play a part in helping them change it. Wow. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm, so I'm tearing up and I'm like, okay, just give me a moment here. Like I'm looking out and the group that I was speaking to, this wasn't teachers. These were superintendents, directors, heads of corporation. Like this was the, the council for Ed can. So it was like their, 
their leadership group. I, I hope someone afterwards said, wow, like I heard your presentation really connected. They tweeted me, they sent me a message and um, they were talking to the person that invited me there. And there was this individual, his name is Stephen Hurley. He had mentioned that, you know, it went really well and there was a lot of chatter that came out of it. And all my response was, you know, they they hold a lot of power in Canadian education. I hope my voice echoes through their decisions. Like I hope when they're thinking about next steps that that comes up. I have no direct I have no direct uh, sort of like uh, enforcement there, but I hope they think of the story. But that, I think in that moment when I choked, that was compassion fatigue. That was me. Like I just, I, I had no other space other than to let out a little bit of a squeak and a tear and like, okay, thank, that was my moment. Now I'm going to keep talking. Um, and then you move on because right. you have to, because <laughs> you have to. Um, and, and then you go home and have a bottle of Shiraz or something and you kind of, you know, bind your wounds and look at the stars and hug your children and, you know, spend time with your spouse. You recorrect and you you get back in there again. Do you, um, who reads your blog? Do you think I found it on this side of the world? I read, I read, I got a message from you that stuff needed to change. You needed to change. You're craving a change, but you didn't know how I heard the bat signal from whatever that was 3000 miles away. Is there anybody in your region that has been at least as supportive as I have? Oh, definitely. Um, okay, good. <laughs> the response was exceptionally supportive, which is always lovely. Um, so, what were what was some of the responses then? How did how did that land for people? There was a lot of of sort of um, a sense of, oh wow, you know, I have felt this, or I'm feeling this, or I hear this, um, and I think. I've been struck over the years as to how often what I would view as sort of a negative blog post, because in some ways that felt really negative to me, are the ones that really strike a chord in a way that surprises me. Now, I don't think there are a ton of people reading my blog. <laughs> I don't blog because I, I don't blog. I blog for myself. I blog because it it helps me reflect and and stop and pause and, and think through things. Um but I have often felt like when I'm frustrated or struggling, that those are the posts that people really respond to. And I think it's because, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is when someone else shares that, it's so reassuring to hear someone else say it. You know, you can admit to yourself that you've felt that, um, even if you hadn't been willing to admit it before. But I also think that as educators, we always feel like we have to put on a brave face. And so we don't say when we're struggling or, you know, let it show that things are not going well. Um, And so when someone does, we can go, oh, oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, I know that. (laughs) Um, And I think that's part of being a teacher is that sense of we're always we're always trying to make things better. And we can't, you know, we can't we can't let ourselves feel badly. Um, And that probably is is part of why we then burn out. Hmm. I've I've asked before, so I I mess around in social media kind of all over the place. I blog some, I have this podcast, I have some videos on YouTube. Like I went through a stretch, I still kind of do it, but I've got, I went through a stretch where I was vlogging little five to six minute, little in the moment, after the moment kind of things. Um, And I can remember it was last year I asked my principal, like, because, you know, without trying to promote, I'm just curious about 
you know, where am I, what is my reach here? As in, and I asked him flat, I'm like, have, has anything that I've ever posted, I have a, you know, very balanced, good relationship with my principal. I said, you know, has anything ever come across your desk? Like, has there ever been any mention? He's like, nope. I'm like, nothing. And then you get a little, get a little like nothing at all. Like, he's like, nope. He goes, but I don't do the Twitter. And I'm like, okay, it's just, okay, cool. And I was like, and, but, but part of it is, you know, measuring the ether, right? Um, I love that you and I can have this conversation because of, because I didn't follow you before that. So I'm even thinking like, how did I, I'm like, I, I did someone, someone must've retweeted right. it or for me, for me to come across it. And I love that kind of happenstance connectivity, like for us to build PLN that way. And then for it to result in you and I having this phenomenal conversation right now, you know what I mean? Like. This is this is one of the beauties when I start to espouse why it's necessary. It doesn't have to be Twitter, but why it's necessary to get outside your silo, just to be able to look back. You get that you get that perspective on what you're doing, in in a way that you don't get by being on the inside all right. the time. I just well, sorry, I'll speak for myself. I don't. I don't. No, I, <laughs> I, I need to sort of. I think it is very easy for us to assume that our norm is everyone's norm, um, and there's. There's a negative to that, to not recognizing how very different it can be. But it also means then that you aren't aware of all the other possibilities. Um, I, The online world has astounded me at how much I've realized I can learn from high school teachers and college professors and non-educators. And, you know, when I'm learning as much as I do from high school math teachers who are living in a wildly different world teaching content, I do not understand, as is proven to me every time I try to teach my 14-year-old anything that she's struggling with in math. <laughs> Um, and yet I gain so much from their reflections on their teaching. Um, it's, it's a reminder to me of how much I was missing in my first decade of teaching before it was so easy to connect, you know, when what I did was read professional books and professional articles, almost always about elementary education, um, without a recognition of what I could gain from so much beyond that. And, and Twitter and, (laughs) and blogging and all of that has helped me see that really, there's so much more out there and it's really exciting. And and while there are challenges to that, I'm going to be devastated when Twitter falls apart. <laughs> oh, I've mentioned, I put that in a tweet talking in a thing today that it's not permanent, you know, our sort of consumption with it being the, the flavor of choice for mm-hmm. academics. I just, I, I, I recognize it. Something else will replace it or interests will shift and it'll, it'll kind of like shrivel. Um, I'm I'm curious. We're we're actually coming up to the end. We are, but I I it's the, the damn notes here. I'm like, there's a thing I still want to talk to you about though, and it's it's the intention. Okay, so your blog, and and like I said, I've lurked it. I've read a bunch of stuff, and you and I shared with you the notes that are uh, that were curious to me. Um, I want to I want to land on maybe as we wrap that idea of um. The teacher citizen and you 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 wrote a post about going to two protests two walks and i just it i find um i really dig the colleagues of mine that are able to in a really fine granular manner speak holistically of themselves they don't they don't, if, if they do differentiate between their teacher self 
and their their personal life self it's so well done that i don't feel like every time they transition they're smacking or climbing a wall so when i read when i read blogs where individuals it could be blogs or tweets or you know instagrams whatever is your social media of choice um I've really come to appreciate individuals that will include their life experience outside of the classroom. I find for me, it, it, it's, it, I feel like that individual is exhibiting bravery. It, it strikes me as that they are honoring the whole person. They're not trying to create a partition between what is home life and what is school life. It's all life and it's all learning. And when I read your post about the um, March for Racial Justice and the March for Black Women and including your own family in it, I thought this is profound and this is entirely on point and it's purposeful because this is learning. And um, I've had a lot of conversations. I, I do another podcast with a friend of mine. It's actually the the colleague that got me into podcasting. We decided to do a um uh, basically it's our week in review and um this week we were talking about uh intentional interruptions as in how you need to kind of break yourself from your routine in order to sort of figure out what your routine's all about so it falls in step a little bit about your career considerations like you need to find a thing that kind of breaks your mindset so that you can kind of put the pieces all in front of you but but the the sort of like what we talk about there very much blends the whole self. We talk about what it means to be a father, to be a teacher, to be a spouse, to be a parent teacher, and to just be a teacher. And we try and decode, it's called decoded. So we try and do it from the point of view of what are we trying to reveal about this context that you wouldn't notice from the outside because it's so glossy smooth, right? I read your post and I thought, this is cool learning. This is a post that sounds like you were being challenged by what you were experienced experiencing there. Can you tell me a bit about the post? Yeah, I definitely was being challenged um, in a way that I don't think I had really realized um, that I really had anticipated would be true. Um, I guess uh, at this point, I am so accustomed to being comfortable in a, in any group Um that wasn't true for me when I first began teaching and and looking back, I don't know how much of that was just as a brand new teacher at 25. I didn't feel like I had the knowledge or skills or there was always this sense of imposter syndrome. Um, or if the, the discomfort I felt came from the fact that I had not in a very long time, maybe ever really been the one white person in a room. Um, and for a significant portion of my teaching career, I have been the one white person in the room. And as a teacher, and even even with families now, that's become a pretty comfortable situation. And so I didn't anticipate feeling uncomfortable at, at these marches. Um, and when my daughter and I got there, I realized, oh, I really do. I feel like I'm stepping in in a place that I don't belong. And... Um, and, and found myself looking for other people who look like me to prove that, yeah, it really was okay that I was there. Um, when in reality, the fact is, everyone should be there. <laughs> and and no one 
not a single person there made me feel uncomfortable. The the discomfort was all on on my part, and I and I recognized that, and it was made even more clear to me by the fact that my ten year old never felt uncomfortable. Um, she never questioned that she knew exactly why we were there, and therefore we belonged there. Um, and and she didn't feel any different from anyone else in that group. Um, and that was huge for me to see her to see her feel comfort when I didn't and to kind of think through what that meant for me. Um, I, I, I teach a group of students who, who need whatever advocacy we can do for them. Um, their families often don't know how to advocate for them because they're new to the country or they don't speak English or, you know, they just, <laughs> for whatever reason, these are families that often don't know the system and don't know how to advocate in the way that families who look like me often do. Um, and, and I feel really strongly about doing whatever I can to advocate both specifically for students, meaning that, you know, I fight hard to get, I get students identified for gifted that, that maybe wouldn't otherwise be recognized because they're still learning English and, you know, their grades aren't looking like a gifted kid's grades. But, um, but I also think about that on a more global scale and that means showing up at marches like the March for Racial Justice and the March for Black Women. Um, it means kind of arguing with colleagues when there was a day last spring, um, there was a kind of an organizational, a, a ground roots organizational thing happening that meant that a lot of immigrants took the day off. We had a day without immigrants in the U.S. And at our school, it meant that we had half of our students absent because families kept their children home. Um, and we had teachers who were so upset at that, you know, that these kids were missing a day and we weren't going to not be there and how could they not be here? And, and I thought, first of all, one school day, really, it's not going to hurt them a whole terrible bit at, to miss one school day. And, and what a lesson those kids were learning to recognize that, look, there are ways that we have power in society and we need to stand up and show that we matter. And, and, um, so, so whatever it is that I can, that I can find my way of, of advocating for families and, and kids that I think may not have the power to advocate or may not have the knowledge of the system to advocate, um, be that individual or global. And oftentimes it does mean I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and I figure if I'm feeling uncomfortable, then I'm probably growing and learning. And that's not a bad place to be. I am. Um, I agree. I have... I've my sort of search within this space. I have not, um, I have not participated in a March. Um, my, I guess my inquiry and I'm not trying to make it overly teachery, but is, um, <clears throat> how do I present myself as a viable candidate to be an ally? And the last conversation that I had in a large group about, um, about equity, someone at the table basically said, well, I'm an ally, but I feel like people won't let me be an ally. And I thought that's exactly the point that that's you're, you're addressing exactly the point. You can't enforce the fact that you want to be an ally and have people say, okay, white guy, that is just talking positive, happy words. It's going to take a little bit more work than that. So you needed to spend time in spaces where the discomfort reminds you about the work that me that needs yes. to be done. And, you know, your two, your two sort of like rotating atoms on this, I'm probably using the wrong molecular word, but basically the two things orbiting each other is you exploring your discomfort 
and observing your daughter's comfort. And at, at the end of that, I wonder, was there any, where did you land on your discomfort? Did you learn anything from that? Or is it still a discussion you're sort of having with yourself? It's definitely still a discussion I'm having with myself. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I've settled it yet. Um, I'd like to think that in the future I'd feel more comfortable. I'm not, I'm not certain I'm there yet. Um, I think that role of ally, um, is, is one with which I struggle, um, for exactly the reasons you're talking about. I, I so strongly want to be an ally, but I also want to do it right. And I'm not really sure what that looks like. Um, and that's something I just have to keep struggling with and I have to keep, putting myself out there and feeling uncomfortable and screwing up and I'm, I'm going to screw up. I, you know, God love the friends who will write to me after I write a blog post and say, you're totally wrong on this. <laughs> and I'll go, Oh, Oh, I missed that. I had no idea. Thank you. And go back and let me make some changes. Let me, let me come to a better understanding. Um, and, and, and that's a really hard thing to do, but I think as a teacher <laughs> to bring it back to that, that's so critical because that's what our kids are doing all the time. That's what our students are all doing all the time is taking a risk and feeling uncomfortable and putting themselves out there and making mistakes. And if we understand how that feels, we're going to be a, a much better support to them um, and, and help them recognize that that's how you grow. That's where you learn is in that discomfort and in that risk taking and in those mistakes. Um, and so as an ally, that's where I am. And it's it's not a comfortable place to be. And yet I remind myself it's far more comfortable than living the lives that many of these, that many of our disadvantaged populations for reasons that are structural and out of their control. I, I, I'm in a better position than they are. And I'm going to just go with my discomfort. Cause really that's not that big a deal. Yeah. You're so true. It's so right. I, I will say I am, I am, you're doing it right. I, I strive to bring, I strive to bring these moments to my children as well, right. my own my own two kids, and allow them to see it with their own eyes. And I got the sense from your post that that's what was playing off there, that there was a real... My, my child needs to sort of see this in a way and to see me in the space and to sort of make their own connections as to what is going on here and remain open to the questions that happen. And I think in doing so, you're representing the legacy of being an ally, whether you feel like you're directly directly impacting the broader topic. I think what you're doing is building a base of understanding in your own child that will serve the same purpose. Uh, that, that poster that you have in here that said that really kind of choked you up is, is a good example of that because it, it reminds yes. us about legacy and that that poster could have been used several times the whole I'm marching so that my, my child won't have to. Yep. And then the big too late, I'm now marching. So my grandchild won't have to. And I just noticed it may be inconsequential, but it's, yes, it's it held <laughs> by a white hand. And you know, that, that I think in some ways, whether it's representative of what the, the total color of what that group was, but it, it strikes me as this is an individual that's willing to be in that space and address the broader question as to at what point is this right. going to stop when or change? When can we stop marching? And it's, yeah, and when can we stop marching? 
right? So definitely on the right track. It was a profound piece for its for its brevity. It was a pro- profound piece, and it's it it. This is like our two point conversation. Maybe we can go deeper into the you know is teaching uh. political, because I think. I think you, yeah, I love that. Go ahead, laugh, yeah. sigh. It, but we're gonna we're gonna leave it. We're, we're gonna honor the fact that I've been told that my podcasts are too long in general. But I have. I've actually been told that. I'm like, whatever. It's a conversation, right? You always feel short shrifted if you cut it off too soon. Someone's like, oh, oh, fine. I'm never talking to that guy again. But I will say that um, that concept of of sort of embracing the politics of teaching, we're not. It, I, I think that the right view of the politics of teaching is in service yes. to others. And your piece here, I would love to take that as the leap off point if you and I have the occasion to talk again, because I think politics of teaching has to be politics of being a teacher. And then it leads directly into the politics of being a teacher means how do I better serve the communities that I yes. that I'm connected with? And the instant you walked into that march, you are now officially connected with that community. So I'm proud for you. I'm happy for you. I know it's a challenging space to be in, but I also can fully appreciate from a parent point of view, the learning, the depth of learning and having just knowing that your child has an appreciation for it is is incredibly valuable. (laughs) Mm. Okay. So I know let's, that's, Yes. Deep side, deep breathing, alternating nostril. You ever done that just to sort of deescalate? <sighs> I just did it. It's very refreshing. Okay. I still have other notes, but I feel like I feel like I do want to chat again. This was, I do. This I'm there. I'll so, say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's here's where I, I like to drop though is um, where would you like people to reach out to you? What would be ideal if people are reaching out to you? They want to you know like because I, I like have a million people that listen to this podcast. ish (laughs) yes and i love that word ish it makes everything work Um, it is it it means even more though when you're like if you're if you're a a believer if you're is peter reynolds right yeah if you're a peter reynolds believer then it it totally makes sense but anyone (laughs) listening to this go out and buy ish go buy go out and buy i am peace any of those books i my kids love it everything yeah buy everything i get no cut i'm not sponsored but Peter, hey, I'll take free books. Um, um, where would you like people to find you? I, and I want people to find you. I would love people to extend this conversation with you. Where do you want to be found? Thank you, Chris. Twitter is the easiest place, which is at Jen Orr, J-E-N-O-R-R. Um, but my Gmail is the same. So Jen Orr at Gmail. Um, if people feel like a private conversation is something that, that would matter more to them if they're feeling as I've been feeling. Mm-hmm. They definitely will. And I, and I encourage, I encourage that type of, you know, cross pollination. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting other people read this post. I can't imagine that if I can find it randomly walking my dog in the morning, seriously, this is, this is, like I said, this is the beauty of social media is that it can bring, it can bring two very different contexts together and exist in this space. And I got to tell you, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking with me. Chris, thank you. I really enjoyed it and uh we'll connect soon okay sounds great take care you too chasing squirrels podcast can be found on podbean and itunes if you want to have a conversation on the podcast please reach out to me probably the best way to connect with me is on twitter so that would be at chris j clough i also blog a little bit on wordpress feel free to check in on some of those topics and 
I really do appreciate the time you spent with the podcast. Thank you for listening, and have a fantastic evening.